Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. to the Mad Max Minute, where what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 68, which begins with a bad cop raider approaching Max, and it ends with the arrival of Wes's reinforcements. So we got a pretty tense game of hide-and-seek going on here, and Max is not exactly what I would call winning. It's funny that you say that, because you're right. He is not what you would call winning, but by the end of this minute, he wins. Yeah. <laughs> he wins anyways. Just an example of Max either being incredibly lucky or just having so many contingency plans in place that the deck is stacked for him. I think it's a little bit of both. In the background, we can hear the toady shouting, the tanks are full, oh mighty Wes, and it's all yours. And it makes me wonder just how amazed they must be at the idea of finding full tanks of gas, because in the wasteland, that's probably something they never find. It reminds me of times in my life where I've had no money. Yeah. And when it's time to get gas, you only put $10 in because that's all I have. So you never get a full tank of gas. And then those times when you finally do get to have a full tank of gas and it does it feels like you're on top of the world having a full tank of gas is like the best thing and especially for these guys where first of all it's two full tanks of gas right they are big yes what i find interesting about this statement is that the toady the way he talks to wes says oh mighty wes and it's all yours i think psychologically he needs to hype somebody yeah and as much as he doesn't want to follow the instruction of wes because i really don't think he does he can't help himself i think he's also used to being around megalomaniacs who need ego stroking he's able to recognize who the biggest baddest guy in the area is and just suck up to him it's also i think a little unique that the toady is the one who discovered the tanks full of gas a lot of people a lot of villains a lot of minions would try and take credit for that find yeah and say hey look what i found look what I lugged up to the truck to take back to the horde. Toadie's not like that. All credit and all glory goes to Wes. Although you could argue that they would never have gotten those tanks to begin with if Wes hadn't pursued. It was Wes's plan to chase after them. Right, but villains don't think like that. Villains are bad people. They think selfishly. But that's not the toady. Right. Oh, okay. Because the toady's not like that. Okay, I get what you're saying now. Yes. So we also see the bad cop is still creeping towards Max. Creeping, I feel like is the correct word. Yeah. Why is he taking his time? He really doesn't need to. No. Max is disabled. And while the bad cop can't fully see Max, 
So he probably can't see that Max is disabled. Yeah. But I think it's a very safe assumption. He can see the tracks of Max's entire body in the sand. If Max were able to move a little bit more freely, his leg would not be sticking out from behind the rock. Right. So I think it's a safe assumption that Max is disabled. That does bring another question, though. The Horde in general, what's their experience with Dog? Do they really know about his existence or have witnessed or experienced his ferocity? I don't think so. When the rig was coming back to the compound, Dog was nowhere to be seen Right. in that chase. We know he was in the truck, but he did not show at all, which is odd. And we didn't bring it up when we were covering that section. I think the only people that have faced Dog's wrath are the gyro captain and the mechanic. They're the only people in this movie that have actually been harassed by the dog. Yeah, I think so. So being cautious about the dog was not holding the bad cop back. I think he might have been moving slowly. He was sneaking? Either sneaking, hoping to get the drop on Max, which really, not that he necessarily knew that Max was in the condition he is, but I mean, you can assume based on the crash, but he was probably sneaking out of habit. Like when you've got a crossbow and you've got one shot, you got to make it count that you can't just run into position, pop off a shot, and then be ready to go for from there. Right, his first shot has to disable Max. If it doesn't kill him, which it's not supposed to, as said, don't kill him. Exactly. In which case, I'm not sure that the bad cop could do much more damage to Max without killing him. Just the speed at which he's moving is just, he's taking his sweet, sweet time. He is. And now, I mean, movie speak, He's building tension. Right. That's what's happening here. <laughs> we can't criticize how fast he's walking because he's building tension. Like, this is important for the scene. He needs to be menacing our main character in such a way that we can start to get nervous for him. And we're just so gosh darn impatient sometimes. <laughs> There is a film goof in this second shot of the film. When we're looking at Max behind the rock, we can hear the toady start to talk. When we cut to the bad cop leveling his crossbow at the rock, we can see the toady in the background. The toady is still technically yelling, saying, you know, oh, it's all yours. But if you look at the toady's face specifically, he's not moving his face in such a way that he would be shouting up the hill. He's just crouched back there by the tanks. So it's a tiny detail. Probably takes up less space on the screen than the film goof from yesterday. But I saw it. Still counts. <laughs> yeah. I'll bet that's a pretty common goof. I think people in general might be surprised at how much dialogue is ADR. Oh, yeah. This is one time where it was incredibly obvious if you were looking in the wrong place. We weren't supposed to be looking at Toadie. Exactly. We were supposed to be looking at the crossbow and mentally looking at where the crossbow was pointing. George Miller was doing the drawing your attention thing again, so we weren't supposed to be looking at the Toadie. And it definitely helps that the raider had a bright red arrow. Yes. The color of blood and action and everything like that. Looking over the rock in this first shot where Max's face is, when we cut back to the raider, it's pretty much his face in that same general area of the screen. So it's making it easy for us to follow along with who is menacing who. Going back to that other idea you raised, though, of what is the raider planning on doing with that crossbow? Because he's not supposed to kill Max. Could he really do that much more damage to Max? I feel like if he were shooting Max with that arrow in order to disable him, it would be literally beating a dead horse. I keep going 
going back to the bad cop doesn't know that. He doesn't know the extent of Max's injuries. Mm -hmm. Which part of me is like, well, yeah, because he hasn't seen him. But the other part of me is like, but based on what his car just went through, of course he's disabled. It's a miracle that he was able to get himself out of the car at all. Yeah. And that is predictable. I don't know. One thing that the bad cop definitely could not predict was Dog leaping up onto the rock that Max is hiding behind. Yes. And Dog in this shot is interesting because he leaps up onto the rock and he looks at the raider. And he's just standing there looking straight at him, not doing much of anything. And given that we've seen the dog be aggressive earlier in this movie, I'm surprised that they didn't have him get up there and immediately start growling or snarling or doing some sort of aggressive thing towards this raider. I'm trying to find a reason why Dog would be so calm and it's just not working. Mm -hmm. I think it's just we needed it for the plot. Yeah, we, we needed, needed him to just be standing there. Yeah, we needed him to be standing there so that he could get shot. I wonder if Dog was initially very placid towards the bad cop because he is a man wearing all leather and Max is a man that wears all leather. And the dog was not wary of this new character until when the camera goes from looking at Dog, pans across to look at the bad cop. The growling and the snarling doesn't really start until the bad cop raises the crossbow, until he does something specifically antagonizing towards Dog and Max. So the dog is seeing this human dressed all in leather in a very similar way to Max dressing all in leather. And he might think, okay, there are some physical characteristics that are very similar to the master here. And something may go well, could go wrong. I don't know. I'm being very placid about this. But as soon as he gets threatened by that crossbow, that's when he starts vocalizing against the bad cop. And by then it's too late. Exactly. Once that crossbow is leveled at Dog, the raider just lets fly. Yes. And we don't see it. Nope. But given the sound effects that we hear, we know that that arrow goes right into Dog, and that's pretty much the end of him. And that's the end of him. The Mad Max series does not have a good track record with animals specifically dogs. We lost Toby back in the first movie. Yep. That was the name of the pet that they picked up on vacation. We named him Toby because that seemed like a cute dog name. And then he got butchered in the woods. That mm -hmm. wasn't good. And dog, of course, here meets this end. I don't think we have too many more dogs in the Mad Max movies. I think Thunderdome has a monkey and a butt ton of pigs. And I'm not quite sure off the top of my head what Fury Road has, but they don't exactly go back to the dog well all that much. As sad as it is to lose Dog, at least we can take comfort in the fact that Arky Whitley's character, the little dog that she carries around, that one stays fine. Oh, yay. Yeah. We have no emotional connection to that dog. Yeah, it's not a huge consolation prize for sure. I do find it interesting that George Miller chose to kill the dog off screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen other effects killing animals on screen. I'm thinking particularly of the rabbit. We see that rabbit get shot. Yeah. The methods are there, but he chose not to do it. I see the dog getting killed off screen as a visual callback to Jesse and Sprague. With Jesse and Sprague, we see the motorcycle gang coming up behind Jesse. We see that hand cranked down on the throttle. We see the rev counter spike, and then the motorcycle bounces, and they all drive down the road, and then we see the shoe and the ball. 
Mm-hmm. It's very off screen. Yes. It's the same thing with Dog. It's someone that Max is incredibly close to that he's formed an emotional bond to, and we don't see that person actually pass. It's implied very heavily that it happens. We don't see it. Do you think Max could see it from his point of view? (sighs) He did seem to be trying to get his head around the rock. Yeah. It's hard to tell if he actually saw Dog get shot. It's hard to say exactly what Max sees. Right off the bat, one eye is swollen shut. And given the shakeup that he just experienced, I imagine that he's probably not as cognizant of his surroundings as he could be. That reminds me of something. I agree with you. I think he is not particularly cognizant. I think his senses are probably overloaded. That brings me back to a couple of days ago when he had the crash and we were talking about there was no sound with the glass breaking in yep. front of him i was watching it again today preparing this minute and right after that all the sound goes a little muffly yeah i think that is to tell us that his senses are becoming overloaded and there's just so much going on that he can't hear everything he can't see everything and at this point after the crash now his body is probably going into shock and he's even less aware of what's going on around him. Mm -hmm. Getting out of the car was probably all he could manage. George Miller, when he was talking on the Blu-ray commentary, said that after this movie came out, he got letters from people who were angry with him for killing the dog. These people that he would talk to and get letters from, they would swear up and down that the dog was killed on screen because they were so emotionally affected by the implication that they just could envision it in their heads. And it was one of those things where they'd say, oh, how could you do that? How could you do that on camera? And he'd say, like, well, it wasn't on camera. It was panned over, and then we did audio sound effects. Right. And as we know, that dog went on to lead a very full life with people who worked on the stunt team in this movie. (laughs) So people thought that he actually killed the dog? I think so. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, movies can be... If he didn't actually kill a rabbit, he's not going to actually kill a dog. And he probably could have gotten away with actually killing a rabbit. Movies can be very affecting and people can can be very dumb. (laughs) Yes, they can. (laughs) The fact that people think that he did it on screen speaks to the skill that George Miller had in crafting that scene. You're talking about how the bad cop was taking forever to creep up on Max. Well, it was it was setting up the scene. It was setting up the tension. And all these things combined, keeping track of where everybody is, all of the the different shots that we see, including Dog, and then the great sound effects that were very effective, was done so well that you can, you're right, you can actually picture the dog getting shot. This is an interesting layout as far as a scene is concerned because there's a very defined triangle with the three points of the triangle being Max, the bad cop, and the toady. And the dog inserts itself into that triangle and the bad cop is very quick to take him out of it again. As if there's a natural balance to this scene, the bad cop was not about to allow a fourth point to enter and so he quickly snuffed him out. I think one of the major failings of this scene is that Max just lost his dog. He's about to lose the black on black, and we never get to see him process that in the moment. Like, I think he has to realize it later on, and I think we're going to see it when he wakes up back at the compound, but... Again, like I said yesterday, I have to disagree with you on that. 
Yeah. I think we see it tomorrow. Okay. I'm going to have to keep that in mind as we're talking about it, because I feel like this is his entire world crumbling around him. And maybe it's just that I'm expecting Max to show more than he actually does in ever. Right. You know, we're still doing that thing that I've caught myself doing so many times, where I I put my emotions that I'm feeling on Max. I want him to behave a certain way, because that's how I would behave. Yeah. But Max is a blank slate. Mm -hmm. Actually, many protagonists are blank slates. The most famous example of that is Luke Skywalker. He is so bland. Yeah. He's supposed to be bland because you're supposed to be able to put yourself in his shoes and enjoy the things happening around you and imagine that you're there. We're not supposed to do that with Max. Not really. But we do it anyway. We do it anyways. <laughs> and it definitely creates a more dynamic viewing experience for us. But that's not why Max is a blank slate. Max is a blank slate because he has experienced and witnessed so much violence and heartbreak that he just can't deal with those emotions anymore. Yeah. So he just pushes them deep down into his feelings hole. And that's why he's a blank slate. So, yeah, we put emotions on him that he just doesn't feel anymore yeah. there is a person in this scene the third point of the triangle the toady and he makes this really dumb face we see the bad cop shoot the dog we hear the dog whimper and cry out and then we see the toady look over to this scene and he makes just this dumb what would you call it smirk yeah a smirk or a grin or he pushes his lip down with his tongue or something like that it's he is obviously pleased with what has happened yeah but it's also not that important to him he turns to look at the sound of the dog's whimper mm -hmm. he turns to look at it makes that face and then just goes back to what he's doing yeah it was not a significant event to the toady after this look we start going around this triangle i wouldn't say that we necessarily devote more than a couple of seconds variation to each one of these things as we go around we go from toady to bad cop to toady to booby trap to bad cop it's like we keep switching around because there are all these different elements happening and we need to keep track of all of them it's very tense it is the tension ramped up to dog's death the dog's death didn't relieve the tension no it was just like a midway point Mm -hmm. And then it kept ramping up, which is really too bad. We look at the two deaths in this minute of the dog and the black on black. The death of the black on black is, by its very nature, much more dramatic. But even in its ramp up with watching the fuse go down and the toady seeing it and his face and all that kind of stuff, so much more is made of the black on black exploding than the dog dying. Yeah. And that feels a little bit odd. To us, the dog meant more to us than the black on black did. And we've been talking a lot so far in this season about the relationship between the dog and Max and how close and how much understanding there was between them. Maybe we haven't talked enough about the relationship between Max and his car. I think one of the main reasons that is can be linked back to the fact that when Max and the gyro captain first get to the compound, he parks the car, he throws a tarp over it, and then we see a bunch of interactions between Max, the gyro captain, and Dog. When Max 
goes down, grabs Nathan, goes to the compound. They take his car away and they put it somewhere else. We keep getting into these situations where Max was separated from the Interceptor. The Interceptor and Max are a relationship that was forged back in that first movie. Yes. They became one just angry killing machine. And in this second movie, Max just kept getting pulled away from it. Do you think that along the way, these different times that Max was separated from the black on black, do you think we should have been feeling more urgency to get back to the car? I think so. I, for one, missed that. Yeah. I never felt any kind of worry about the car and about its condition and if it was going to get back to Max. We did talk about the compound stealing the car and how unfair and unjust that was. Yeah. So we did talk about it a little bit, but we spent way more time talking about the dog and, oh, is the dog okay? Where is the dog? Are they going to take away the dog? Mm -hmm. There was a point where the dog's life was in jeopardy in the compound and Max acted a bit dramatically to save the dog. I just, I kind of feel like the life and death of these two companions of Max kind of don't match up. Yeah. One interesting thing I noticed about the death of the dog versus the death of the black on black is that the dog is taken out with very little fight. Like, he gets a little bit of a snarl in, but then he's snuffed out rather quickly. The black on black, not so much. Yes, the black on black is more or less destroyed when it hits the bottom of that ravine. But when the toady just flips open that gas cap and the booby trap sparks to life, the black on black is dying, but the black on black is not going to go down without a fight. You are not going to get the satisfaction of taking the gasoline from the black on black's tanks because it is going to fight back in its death throes. You could kind of look at it that the dog represents one side of Max and the car represents another side and that the dog could represent his empathy and his humanity and the black on black represents that cold mechanical killer instinct and that, yeah, you may have damaged that car beyond function, but that booby trap is still there and that booby trap is going to turn you into mincemeat, which is exactly what happens to the toady. Oh, yeah. He is bold enough to try and violate the Interceptor, and for that, he is obliterated. In my notes for tomorrow's minute, I definitely get into that kind of idea a little bit more about how Max is, is handling this. Yeah. And I really like how you looked at it like two different sides of the same coin, which is actually a theme that I think we have seen throughout the movie, specifically about the feral child and Wes versus Max. Yeah. So I, I really like seeing that theme again with Max in the middle and his car and his dog on either side. They are both part of him, perhaps equally. And so they both go out in a way most appropriate to the parts of Max that they represent. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. To do a quick rundown of the shots that we see in this minute. So we saw the bad cop reloading his crossbow. We saw the toady opening up the cab. The booby trap starts to activate. The bad cop puts a bolt into the crossbow. Max tries to raise his shotgun, but drops it. The shotgun is empty, right? If he gave those two shotgun shells that Rebecca handed him back to her, which we're pretty sure he did, then yeah, that shotgun is still empty. He only had one shell from the dead wastelander, and that shell turned out to be a dud, and then shotgun's empty again. He's been using that shotgun this whole movie. Mm -hmm. as just a scare tactic. Yep. And it has worked for him most of the time. <laughs> I'm guessing that that's what he's trying to do here. 
Yeah. Max had an intimidation roll that he had to nail to get this right, but he rolled a one and just dropped the shotgun. Yeah, he did. He did. This might have been a signal to the bad cop that Max is in no position to defend himself, to surprise attack the bad cop, or to run away, Mm -hmm. or to set off any kind of trap of any kind. And this is the moment where bad cop actually raises, well, he resets his bow and actually moves to actually shoot Max. Yeah. So Max is very pathetically trying to attack the person antagonizing him. We cut back. We see that the fuse is burning down. The toady crouched at the back of the car, hears the hissing, and stands up to investigate it. He leans up over the edge of the car. Which I gotta give him a little bit of credit for. Not being dumb enough to ignore a suspicious noise. Right. Being with it enough to be curious. Either choice would not have saved his life, so in the end it doesn't really matter. Yeah. We don't necessarily get to see the toady's reaction to seeing the booby trap just yet because we have to cut back to Max leaning against the rock. We see the bad cop level his crossbow at Max and take aim, and then we cut back to the toady, whose eyes go wide as he realizes what he's looking at, just in time for the fuse to burn down into the trap. This type of facial expression... The eyes going super wide, a bit of a hallmark for George Miller. We have seen it a couple of times between the two movies so far. Oh, yeah. So I'm very interested to see the next two movies if we see those popping eyes again. (laughs) I don't know if they ever pull out the mannequin again, but this would have been the perfect instance for them to do that whole eye pop gag from the first movie yes because as the toady realizes what he's looking at the interceptor just erupts like it doesn't so much explode it erupts like a volcano in this massive fireball and the toady is just no more (laughs) yes yes in fact if i had to pick right now to be either the bad cop or the toady, I'd pick the toady because he's just (laughs) gone and that's the end. Yeah. The bad cop gets flung off to the side and who knows if he's alive or dead, gravely injured, is he going to die later on? Yeah. He flies off screen and then he is never seen or heard from again. It's like him getting thrown out of the frame is him just getting erased from existence. Yes. Yes, it is. He gets blasted into a plot hole where he just falls forever (laughs) a bottomless plot hole that's where he got thrown there we go oh that toady getting blown up though there is the quickest shot of him throwing up his hands in front of his face but then the very next bit we see of them is literally just bits a piece of cloth here what looks like a severed arm there there's just nothing left of him and the fireball is so furious. You can tell it's the final judgment of an angry machine. People, in general, they, the they with a capital T, talk a lot about how movie explosions, especially of cars, that's not how they would explode in real life. If there were ever a car that would actually explode like that, it would be this one. Oh, With yeah. those two gigantic, very full tanks of gasoline on the back probably the closest we'll get between reality and this fantasy that we'll ever get. We've been talking a lot about how this is the death of the Interceptor. Behind the scenes, they didn't actually blow up the original Ford Falcon XB GT Coupe that they sold and then rebought. The duplicate stunt car 
that they made was a 1974 built Fairmont Coupe automatic, originally yellow in color. They painted it black and made it look exactly like the Falcon. It was used for most of the wide shots and the stunt work, including all of those times rolling down the hill. They actually rolled it several times for that sequence until they got just the right shots. No wonder the gas cap popped off. Exactly. It was already beat up. The duplicate was the one that they blew up here, and then they just took the remains, brought it to a junkyard. All right. As all of this carnage is happening, this fire and smoke, Wes is standing up there on the ridge by the road, and he's got this look on his face. Oh, he is seething. Oh, he is so mad. And he's probably standing there thinking, I told them to get gas and bring me the driver. Two very simple requests, get the gas, get the guy driving, and they blew it up. (laughs) (laughs) In Wes's face, I saw that he failed once again to get Max. Yeah. And the realization that he's going to have to go back to Humongous with nothing. Yeah. With less than nothing, having lost the toady. Yeah. I don't think Humongous has any affection for the toady. But the toady served a purpose, and now Humongous doesn't have anybody to serve that purpose. Right. There's an open spot on that truck. (laughs) The plan that Wes originally had when he flew off the handle and started chasing Max, he probably thought, oh, I'm going to get that car, I'm going to get that driver, I'm going to show those compound people that they can't sneak around behind us with their secret agents and things like that. And then he's standing there and he's looking at all of it just go up in smoke. Like, literally, his plan just going up in smoke. Having said all of that, he then turns around and says to the couple of marauders who just arrived on the scene, oh, it's all over, we're gonna leave now. Yeah. <laughs> he looks down into the gully, sees the car on fire, and says, eh, alright, I guess we're just gonna leave. Right. There's no point in going down there, checking out the situation, maybe checking and seeing if Max is still down there. Nope, just time to leave. It's- Oh, wasn't Wes watching this whole scene? Couldn't he see that Max was not in the car? Yeah, couldn't he see the bad cop walking over to that rock and shooting the dog? Yeah. It could be really far away, and maybe Wes... Doesn't have the best eyesight? Although... Honestly, if I was standing in Wes's spot, I couldn't see crap down there. I think that Wes actually has really good eyesight because of all of these long-distance stare-downs that he's been doing. (laughs) I don't know, maybe he was focusing on what the toady was doing and he was ignoring the bad cop. I don't know. It could just be that he's suffering from movie villain-itis, where he just lets fate decide. But he walks away very quickly from the situation. Yes, I I think that really is it. Wes is walking away. We're going to take a closer look at what he's leaving behind in tomorrow's minute. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 68 of The Road Warrior. We will see you tomorrow.